Well, we're in a series now um, talking about great convictions that change our lives, that give us purpose, that guide us, that change us from within. Specific convictions of the Christian faith that actually separate us from the average person in the world today. And so we're going to pick back up on that uh, theme this week. We A few weeks ago we talked about the fact that we believe God is. He is. And then we talked about the fact that the Word of God, the Bible, is our trustworthy revelation from God, our guide for how to live, for how to know Him. All the important things are there. We talked about uh, last week that God has asked us, as those who believe, to share with others, to share a witness. And really, what He's asking us to do is just simply tell everyone that the God who loves us loves them too. Loves them too. And we are the best messengers of that simple message. That God loves the whole world and wants them to know Him. What a privilege it is that He found us and He gives us the opportunity to share that with others. And we we gather even this morning to celebrate that. Today we're looking in the same direction, actually talking about the fact that Jesus is our perfect Savior. In the survey that we mentioned earlier before this series started, the the statement here was that Jesus is sinless. He is different from us. He is perfect. The baby was christened Giovanni di Pietro di Bernardone, at least in southern Italian, that's how you say it. His family was quite wealthy. His father was a merchant and was on a long trip in France when he was born. And when his father came home, he talked so much about his trip to France and looked at this baby named now Giovanni, he decided to call him Francesco. And that became his nickname and the name that we sort of know him by today. Being a wealthy kid, he didn't seem to take um, very kindly to school. He he never seemed to excel in school. He tried some business alongside of his father and was an absolute disaster at business. Probably his father asked him to stop. I don't know, but he really couldn't find himself. He just sort of was drifting through life. And as a young adult, he gathered a number of other young men around himself and essentially lived from one wild party to another. He wanted to somehow show his mettle, to be outstanding. And he loved the old songs of the troubadours who talked about knights in shining armor, and he dreamed of one day going to war and somehow distinguishing himself in battle. And so when his city declared war on a neighboring city, he immediately volunteered took money from his family and outfitted himself as a full-pledged knight, a man of war. The battle did not go as planned. It was bloody, it was vicious, and he himself was taken captive in that battle, thrown into a dungeon where it was dark and nasty and kept there for a year. And when he got out, he was a broken man, 
a young man still, very young, but broken by that experience. He drifted around in and out of depression for the next year or so, looking for something to bring peace to his life, and then he heard of another opportunity to join in war, and he again volunteered and headed off to war, again hoping somehow to distinguish himself, to draw attention, to be a hero to himself. And on that trip to the second battle, he heard a voice say to him, Why are you following the servants and not the master? And recognizing immediately that that voice was a voice he'd been ignoring all of his life. It was the voice of Jesus calling him to give his life to him. He was transformed from a selfish, wealthy 'er ne'er-do-well to a man so focused on Jesus, on living a life that mimicked the life of Jesus and on telling everyone that he could that God's love was powerful and gracious and that it would reach to all and taking risk with his own life to share that with others. Our hero, our San Francisco, Francis of Assisi, was a man not uniquely gifted in his own way, wasting his life, and yet transformed because a perfect Savior found him. He didn't find the Savior. The Savior found him. You know, for all of us who are believers in Jesus Christ and live in this San Francisco Bay Area, Let me tell you, it is so easy to start a conversation about Jesus by just simply talking about St. Francis. I had multiple opportunities just in the last month to just ask people, hey, do you know about the legacy of San Francisco? And, of course, they think I'm talking about something else. And they say, no, tell me about it. And before you know it, we're talking about how Jesus transforms a life. He transformed mine. He transformed yours. He is our perfect Savior that we don't deserve, but that's what makes Him perfect, isn't it? He is unique. Would you turn with me to Hebrews, the fourth chapter? And let's think for a few moments about what makes Jesus so special and so unique. Hebrews 4, 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to the confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tested in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us at the proper time. Jesus is our perfect Savior because He was the perfect sacrifice. Here in these verses, we hear that He sympathizes with our weakness. He He lived in human flesh. He knew what it was to have human weaknesses 
And he was tested or tempted in every way that we are, and yet he was blameless, he was perfect, he was without sin. Now that is absolutely critical as we understand God's redemptive history, because in the Old Testament, God in his grace offered an opportunity for his people to come into his presence in spite of their sin. He is holy God. He is perfect. He can have nothing to do with our sin. And yet he graciously gave them this opportunity by simply offering a sacrifice. By simply saying to God, we're sorry for what we've done and we bring to you a sacrifice. And in the Old Testament law, it is designated as a blood sacrifice. Now, the reason for the blood is that very simply, the Hebrews and most cultures around the world, we know, if all your blood is gone, then your life is gone. And so blood symbolizes life. God was telling his people that sin is so serious, it's so abominable to God, that it takes a life to make it right. And he gave them the chance to offer a bull or a lamb as a substitute for their own lives in coming before God. And so we see that throughout the Old Testament law, an animal could be offered, but it had to be, as the Old Testament says, without blemish. Now, God knows human nature, doesn't he? So here we are as people, we're thinking, oh, we get to bring a sacrifice to God. What are we going to bring? Well, let's bring, you know, the lamb that's not so perfect. Let's bring the one that's sick. Let's bring the one that we really don't want to use anyway. Let's bring the ugly one. Let's bring something that's not perfect. And God said, no, no, you've got to bring to me something that is without blemish. It's not sick. There's no known problem. It's beautiful. It's perfect in its own way. And so that's why it was so important that Jesus be without sin because he came to be our sacrifice. In human form, he was tempted, but he never yielded to that temptation. And that places him in a unique position in relationship to us. These verses say that he knows how to sympathize with us. He's still holy and blameless. He's perfect. And yet, he understands. He's compassionate, sympathetic. And yet, he is also sinless. Now, I know in our relativistic culture today, we're not supposed to compare different saviors. And we're actually not supposed to compare anything religious, right? It actually doesn't make a lot of sense to me because we compare everything else. We compare our shoes, we compare our purses, we compare our jewelry, we compare our haircuts. We compare everything. We compare our, our car, what kind we're driving, how old it is, how many, you know, everything. We compare houses, we compare even areas to live in, right? We compare everything, except somehow in our culture today, we're not supposed to actually say anything about the most important things in life, like what we believe. Isn't that interesting? 
I declare to you that based on Scripture and my faith and most of yours is that Jesus is unique in this sense. I lived for years in the Muslim world and have many, many Muslim friends and share the gospel with hundreds of Muslims. And in reading the Quran, this is not an outside critique. This is from what Muslims believe. Muhammad never claimed to be sinless. In fact, he is told in the Quran that he is a sinner and has to ask God for forgiveness. Gotama, who became who we now call the Buddha, in his early adulthood decided to walk away from his wife and his child and leave them behind, never to give fatherly love to them again. I was talking to an English woman on the beach in Thailand a number of years ago, and we were discussing uh, Buddhism because she was so excited to be in Thailand to have a chance to study about Buddhism. And I asked her some questions about her family, and she told me that she had a daughter who was married, and that they had two beautiful children, and they were the delight of her life. And I asked her, do you desire good for your grandchildren? And she said, oh, absolutely. And I pointed out that that was a problem in Buddhism because you're not supposed to have any desire. But then I asked her this question. I asked her this question. I said, um, is, is their family happy? She said, oh, yes, they're just such a wonderful family. And I said, how would your grandchildren feel if their father one day left home and was never heard from again. He decided that he wanted to go off on some personal private pilgrimage to find some meaning in his life, and he just walked away from him. How would that be? She said, that would be awful, terrible. I said, and, but she said, but my son-in-law wouldn't do that. I said, if you had known beforehand, before your daughter married him, would you have recommended that she marry that man? And she said, absolutely not. And I said, well, it's interesting that you would trust Buddha for your salvation, but you wouldn't want him for your son-in-law. You see, Gautama never said that he was sinless. Jesus is our sacrifice. He is perfect and sinless. He offers us salvation on his merit, not ours. That's the whole point of our faith in Jesus. It's not that, well, look around. Hopefully we have this room filled with people who are being transformed, but I honestly don't think any of them have gotten to the sinless part yet. I, I haven't. We are sinners, but we're Christians because we thankfully accept this grace of God from a sinless Savior. He's perfect for us to cover our sin. The second reason that Jesus is our perfect Savior is that He's the perfect guide. Look back again in verse 14 that we read earlier, chapter 4. It says that He passed through the heavens. Jesus came to this earth from above and went back from to heaven from here. And one of the themes, let me point out a theme in the Gospel of John. Turn, turn to John, the third chapter. Now, we all know verses from that chapter, some of the most famous verses in the Bible. Let me point out, too, that maybe you've not noticed so much before. 
Repeatedly throughout the Gospel of John, the writer tells us that Jesus was from above. He came to be our Savior, not just from here. He wasn't just one of us, wasn't one of the guys who decided to be our Savior. He was sent from above. So listen to John 3, verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. That's Jesus. Look over in verse 31. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth is earthly and speaks in earthly terms because it's all an earthly person knows. The one who comes from heaven is above all. That is Jesus. He is our perfect guide for salvation, for getting to heaven, for knowing God, because he knows what he's talking about. In 1840, there was a man named John Bidwell who was a patriot in the eastern United States. He started an organization that he called the Western Immigration Society. He put ads in newspapers all across the eastern United States. And within a short period of time, 500 people signed up to follow a wild dream that at that time in 1840 seemed crazy to join a wagon train and cross the continent to arrive in the promised land, which is obviously... California. So in that first group of uh, people who gathered the money and decided they really would risk this thing, they got together and they were going to leave from the area of the Missouri River and come all the way across. They had heard rumors and stories about how big a space it was. And they, they got specially built wagons and they gathered all of their food that they were going to need. They had uh, cattle with them and the horses and the oxen to draw uh, the wagons. And they were just about ready to go and they were talking among themselves. There's a lot of expertise about how to fix things and do things within the wagon train. And then they began to see the obvious need that there was one thing that they didn't have. Anybody who had ever been to California. (laughs) They knew that there was this long plain that they were going to go across, but you could get lost out there. Who who knows where you're supposed to go and that there were great rivers and where do you cross the rivers and that there were long stretches without much water. How do you find the water? And then, of course, there were mountain ranges larger than anyone in the eastern United States had ever seen. In fact, there were two mountain ranges bigger than any that ever seen. And it really makes a difference where you try to cross those mountains. And they realize we don't know how to get to California. So they started asking around and they heard about a man named Tom Fitzpatrick, who had been leading actually a group of missionaries up into the mountains. And he had been at least most of the way. And so they sent word to him and he volunteered and he came and he led them because they decided you really ought to have a guide who's actually been to where you hope to go. There's only one. There's only one. Who is that kind of guide to where I want to go? Just one. He is the perfect guide. 
He came from there. He knows the way. He actually is the way, isn't He? As He declared it to us. And then the third point is He is our perfect advocate. Turn over to chapter 7, verses 23 to 28, because it describes briefly what I'm talking about here. Chapter 7, verse 23 to 28. Now many had become Levitical priests in the Old Testament tradition of the law, since they are prevented by death from remaining in office forever. But because He remains forever, Jesus holds His priesthood permanently. Therefore, He is always able to save those who come to God through Him, since He always lives to intercede. For them. For this is the kind of high priest we need holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as high, high priests do, first for their own sins, then for those of the people. He did this once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak. But the promise of the oath which came after the law appoints a son who has been perfected forever. Jesus is our perfect advocate for several reasons. First of all, he's eternal. He doesn't die and have to be replaced. He's also perfect, as we said earlier. He's sinless himself. So when he offers a sacrifice, he's not offering it, first of all, to cover his own sin, which every high priest would have to do. He's doing it simply for us. He doesn't need the sacrifice. He is the sacrifice. And thirdly, it says that he lives forever to be our advocate, to make intercession for us. Now, this is going to date me, but as a young child, one of my favorite television shows was Perry Mason. I love to watch that and see people who had been falsely accused coming to him and say, we don't know why they think we're guilty, but we didn't do it. Can you help us? And so Perry would always, you know, start sending out the detectives and looking and looking at the case. And somehow at the last minute, it was always at the last minute, never happened at the beginning of the show, at the last minute, Perry would stand up and as their advocate, as their defense attorney, he would say, and here's the proof, usually by showing somebody else was guilty, but here's the proof that this person is not guilty. How beautiful that is. The advocate. Now, I want to point out one difference between Jesus and Perry Mason. Well, there's several. (laughs) The biggest difference is this. Jesus doesn't go to the Father and pretend that you and I aren't guilty. We're guilty. We're imperfect. We're sinners. But it says that He lives forever to intercede for us. And here He stands in heaven and says, Yes, Bryce and Stephen and Chris are sinners. They're staff. I'm sorry. Let me use somebody else. No, they'll do. They're sinners. And Don, they're sinners. But guess what? Here is the perfect sacrifice 
for their sins. Here is the blood that covers their guilt. And they come before God because Jesus is our perfect Savior. Praise His name, people. Praise His name. He doesn't advocate for us on the basis of our wonderful goodness. He advocates for us on the basis of His amazing grace. I'd be a little nervous on occasion if I thought He was advocating for me on the basis of my goodness. There'd be days I'd be really nervous. But not now. Because the perfect Lamb of God, spotless and blameless, sinless before all, offered Himself for our salvation. And today we've gathered to celebrate that love and our perfect Savior. Praise His name.